Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Seb Stafford-Bloor from Football 365, and Daniel Storey, the author and columnist. It was football, but not quite as we know it. The sensations were different. The sounds were strangely satisfying. The game remained the same. And that's the main thing, isn't it? The Bundesliga has set a high bar for the Premier League, it's likely there'll be a return to training this week. We'll be talking to Norwich captain Grant Hanley and Leicester's Hamza Chowdhury about that and much else later in the podcast. But let's begin with the impressions and lessons of the weekend. How was it for you, Seb? Slightly strange, but I actually enjoyed it, Mike. I might get slaughtered for this, but I just love having it back. It's obviously without crowds and without fans. It's a very different sport. But then I fell in love with the sport first, the actual mechanics of the game. I am a fan of football. And I was actually pleasantly surprised by the quality of play. Because the, the, sort of the, the game in Germany has been on hiatus since the middle of March. And they haven't really had a pre-season in the normal sense with competitive friendlies and long sort of conditioning programs. I was actually pleasantly surprised by the fluency and the, you know, the calibre of some of the moves and the quality of some of the goals. It is odd, but I went into it with the mindset that I'm determined to enjoy it because this is going to be the new normal for quite a long time. That isn't to disregard the obvious issues that there are and the sort of the the oddity of hearing players call to each other and uh, hear sort of coaches from the technical area uh, or to, to hear the extra loud clunk from goal nets. But I think this is what we're going to have to get used to. And so I, I think we're presented with a fairly stark choice, either accept it and leave some of these grievances at the door or don't watch at all and I would always want to watch you know I'd always want the game under any circumstances so I was optimistic with caveats yeah it was a bit it was a bit like you know watching a game with the mute button on wasn't it I I just thought it was quite interesting that almost because you maybe concentrate a little bit harder you get a greater appreciation of, of maybe the skill involved or the movement that first Dortmund goal was was wonderful in the fluency of it and perhaps maybe some of the subtleties of that move would have been missed in the you know the great hubbub of a, of a big derby what did you think about it Dan? I think it was strange I think it was very different I think it hammered home to me that we're going to be without supporters for a long long time we keep hearing this phrase new normal and this is going to be football's new normal and we're going to have to get used to that I understand the the view of some that 
you know, without fans, football is nothing. And I think in a normal context, that's probably true. But at the moment, we don't have a choice. You know, this is not going to be a sport of of ideals for a long, long time. It's going to be a sport of compromise. And one of the compromises is that we're going to have to get used to this. It it did feel strange, but we have to remember it was the first weekend of of this new normal and therefore it it was always likely to feel very different I think maybe in a month's time when other leagues are doing the same we might well get used to it a little bit more yeah I just I suppose you know we could make it less sterile you know I'm thinking about maybe putting huge flags out maybe shirts on seats I know that was done yesterday I thought it was quite interesting you know that was at uh, at the Cologne Mainz game where they talked about a ghost choreo made up of of shirts and scarves lent by the fans to the club you know people are searching for ideas now you know I, I hate the idea of piping in fan noise I just hate it I just think it would be so artificial but there was one really interesting one floated by Phil Kitromedes who he basically said look let's get the clubs to nominate one fan per match to watch each game. Now, obviously, there are all sorts of practical things. It could be a bit maudlin. But is that is that something... Has he got something there, do you think, Seb? He does. He does. I mean, good luck trying to find that one fan to watch Mourinho's Tottenham. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I, I think it could be quite fun. I, I mean, it It'll depends... Sun, by the way. <laughs> I think it depends on how you build around the idea. So... What are you doing with that fan? So you're going to take lots of pictures of him and, and and show him on camera a lot during the games. Are you gonna are you gonna mic him up during the games as well? Are you going to ask him what he thinks in the in the television coverage afterwards? We've covered this before, Mike. I, I think there's a line here. In you got to be really careful with anything artificial that you put into the stadium because at a certain point beyond the tipping point, the more you're trying to make it look the seem and, and feel like normal, the more people are actually going to miss it. So over the weekend. I caught the end of a South Korean game in the K-League, which alongside have been commentated on by someone from Yorkshire and with piped-in crowd noise. I mean, the whole thing was a really strange spectacle. And even these things which are designed to comfort you, so the piped-in noise and the, the sort of the monotone sound of fans in a stadium, not rising or falling or getting more excited or more you know anxious, it was just a noise. Now, these things, they kind of almost add to the oddity of everything. And so you do have to be careful. But a fan would be fun. I, I think it, dep- it depends who it is, though, doesn't it? Really, Because if you got the wrong fan, that's, uh, I don't know, that's not going to go well, I don't think. <laughs> One of the interesting things on this piped in noise idea, which I, I agree with you, Mike, in terms of in the stadium, but I wonder if maybe that's something that, that broadcasters could do off their own back. Because you know it's a very different experience anyway watching a game at the ground as opposed to on television but with things like the Bundesliga and now let's face it the Premier League moving forward indefinitely we're not going to be at ground so therefore it's going to become a purely TV spectacle I wonder if maybe that's something that you wouldn't have it piped in the ground but you could have kind of overlaid by broadcasters to make that televisual experience feel a little bit more normal it's one of those things that I wouldn't know until I saw it but I think that might be worth considering in terms of making that armchair experience feel a little bit more authentic perhaps yeah you know well I think they're trying or they're talking about something similar in baseball in the states to do with that and actually to be honest I don't know about you guys but I actually 
almost appreciated the commentators even more at the weekend. You know, Ian Dark, I think it was, said on social media that Paul Dempsey was commentating on the Dortmund-Schalke game. And uh, he basically had the guy from uh, Tesco with his online delivery of groceries knocking on his front door. And so he was thinking, do I go and go and get my, you know, my strawberries or do I go and keep commentating on this? So, yeah, it was a, it was a strange, strange old time, really. I suppose, you know, and you touched on it there, Dan, the success or the perceived success of the, of the Bundesliga coming back will increase the pressure on the Premier League to do so, won't it? Yeah, it will. And I mean, I, I think the Premier League doesn't need any added pressure, but it's certainly going to get some. Germany was always going to be the blueprint for the rest of Europe. And it, we have to say that part of the success was the match day, which went pretty well, and I'm glad it did. The other success that they rely upon is is this week, which is the testing programme post-matches, because if there is now a, a spate of positive tests, then serious questions will understandably be asked. But in terms of the match day experience, I think it, it very, it set, as you said at the start, it set a very high bar. I don't think that any league can beat that. Everything seemed to go well. The, the face mask, although weird to look at, was completely understandable. The goal celebrations, these kind of socially distanced goal celebrations created an image which I think are going to become kind of iconic for the next year of the game. But yeah, football always had to set an example that it could do this and do this with a minimum of fuss. And I think the Bundesliga did that and the Premier League will, I think, be very happy that someone else made the first move, but also be happy that they do have that blueprint to follow. Yeah, I suppose you know, we're all beginning to sift through the weekend. One thing I think will probably be significant is the fact that there were, I think it was eight muscle injuries in, in the six Bundesliga matches that were played. That then gets to the heart of the physical demands on players. You know, obviously there will be an urge to rush back as soon as possible. You know, there's some talk about a training return this week and then also games, well, pick a, pick a date at the moment, you know, June the 12th, June the 19th. You know, the more cautious people are saying June the 26th now. That's going to be a key decision, isn't it? Can we get players, you know, maybe not performing at optimum levels right at the start, but can we protect them from getting these injuries? What do you think, Seb? Yeah, I think so, Mike. I think it's also about what kind of concessions we make after that start date. So, I mean, when when the Premier League resumes, it's going to be dictated by, yes, how the Bundesliga performs, what kind of testing, what the testing reveals this week, but also when it wants to finish, because this is a race against time. This is a move of convenience. So I wonder, you know, is it smart potentially to, to play more games in the evening? Because obviously we're going to be playing through the summer. So we can't do that much about the stress being placed on players' muscles, apart from adding an extra two substitutions into the into the legislation temporarily. But can we make it cooler? What can we do around the games and the conditions around the games to aid recovery times? I'm not really smart enough to answer that question. I don't have the, the requisite knowledge. But yeah, this is going to be an issue because we could have a situation where, don't forget, whilst whilst these players have been in lockdown, they haven't lived exactly like us three. I mean, in the sense that they're not ordering off delivery every night and, you know, putting on five <laughs> kilos. Um, but even for a pro- professional athlete, trying to maintain some semblance of, you know, elite condition, it's going to be absolutely impossible. So it's not like a pre-season where you come straight in and you 
you know you've you've been building up in warm weather and you're you're you know you're you're, you're going to get a few muscle tweaks in august and september anyway we could have a spate of injuries throughout the first few weeks of this and it could almost almost to the extent where it could compromise the integrity of the competition itself so these are very serious considerations they will be they won't they won't be prioritized because there are bigger questions to answer but this is certainly an issue which is going to need to be addressed as we as we actually get going yeah, I think the clubs have got to understand that this is going to be an acutely personal decision for, for players and coaches and managers, isn't it? What I also find very interesting in, in the sort of build-up to these decisions is that the way certain clubs are emerging as, you know, perhaps not consciously, but but spokespeople for their trade. You know, Brighton have been, you know, very been on the front foot in, in, in PR terms. I find Watford's stance really quite interesting. You've got Troy Deeney, who was very direct, which is pretty unsurprising since he was entirely in character. Nigel Pearson obviously was was raising doubts as well. I also think, in a broader sense here, uh, Dan, you know, Watford, for instance, have given over their ground to NHS employees from the adjoining hospital. Do you think almost a new sort of social contract is starting to emerge here. I hope so. I really do. And I hope it's a, a lasting one that, that leaves a legacy beyond this pretty miserable period in everyone's lives. So I think, you know, I think Troy's argument, and he, he does it deliberately, and I think rightly, is to try and undermine this kind of festering argument that players are highly paid prima donnas that don't really want to go back to work. That seems to be incredibly unfair. This is a point of personal and familial protection they you know they understand that if anything goes wrong then it has far-reaching consequences that, that extend way beyond football you know into players lives we, we've long treated players to greater and lesser extents as, as either robots or performing circus animals but we cannot ignore the you know the the connection between players professional lives and their personal lives and the lives of their their families and loved ones and I think it's wholly appropriate that they make the point that, hang on a minute, we're not just going to be rushed back because the Premier League wants its entertainment product and supporters want to watch football again. This goes beyond that. You know, we need to remember where football sits in the greater social construct and we need to see, you know, in it, where football sits in footballers' everyday lives. And whilst I know they love the game and I'm sure most of them would love to be back playing, there are other considerations now. And, and quite frankly, there are other priorities. Yeah, but the pressure won't decrease, will it? You know, when you look at it, Seb, you've got you know, the the perceived wisdom from UEFA is that the Champions League final really has to be played on August the 29th. You know, that's by its very nature an artificial target. But I, I suppose it just adds to this groundswell of pressure. Look, you've got to get this on. Yeah, I've never agreed with that UEFA deadline, really, Mike, because I've never seen the purpose behind it. I mean, I know you've got to get the competition finished, but it's the wrong way around. If you want to have a position which genuinely uh, is supportive of the, you know, the, the long-term future of the clubs, then domestic competition is much more important because, without question, it affects far more of the, the sort of the, the game's general population. I find it unhelpful, like you say, because it, yeah, it is another pressure, and also. It's another thing that can be used to obfuscate the very real human issues that lie at the heart of this. I don't, yeah, I just, it, it feels wrong, feels wrong to me. Yeah, and, you know, as we're speaking, you know, players are talking and, and, and players are wondering, you know, when on earth they're going to actually get into a training ground. You know, if you look at the, 
the primary guidelines, um, talking about players working on their own, turning up in their cars already changed, probably be around at the training ground for, for as little as you know, just over an hour, 75 minutes, something like that. We've been talking this week to a couple of players who are going through that process at different stages of their career, really, and they have interesting perspectives. We've talked to um, Hamza Chowdhury at, at Leicester, but first off, here's the conversation Seb and I had with Grant Hanley, senior pro, club captain at Norwich, and someone who is a key conduit for all the information that his teammates need. Grant, well, thanks for coming in, mate. I just really would like to start looking at your role as captain, how it's evolved. My son worked at the club for a couple of seasons. Uh, Stu brought him in with the recruitment team, so he's obviously seen the way you work as a captain. Can we just start off? How has your role of captain evolved during recent weeks? Are you sort of consciously communicating more widely and more often with your teammates and coaches and the club itself? No, definitely. I think so. You know, obviously, something like this is, you know, I've never been through as a captain before. It's sort of, you've kind of got to be that middleman. Obviously, I speak to the club, I speak to Stuart, you know, very regularly. So in terms of being that middleman and, you know, going back and feeding back information to the players, that's sort of been my job. And I think it's important, you know, obviously as, as a captain, you're, I've got to try and do the best for the players and hear the players and know what their opinions are. So I think that's been very important, you know, keep, keep in constant contact with, with the lads and, you know, see what their feelings are. And, you know, it's been constant questions and what's happening here, what's happening then, what, what does that mean, what's this? So... No, it's been it's been difficult because you know as as you know we've not always got the answers, but I think it's important to you know do, do your best to you know at least help the lads as much as you can. Yeah, you you were also captain at Blackburn, of course. You know, what is it about the role that that suits your character and experience? I suppose you know you you acquire a certain sense of perspective, don't you, in these circumstances? Yeah, I think so. I'm I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I've always I've always been a talker in terms of on the pitch. You know, that's one of the biggest parts of my games, I think, in terms of organising and, you know, sort of doing a bit in terms of that. I think that that's probably, you know, one of my strong points. But, you know, I like to think as myself as well as sort of level-headed and, you know, try to do, always do the right thing and sort of set an example. Grant, can I just ask, I mean, you're obviously a senior member of the dressing room. Is your role accentuated with the younger people? Because obviously you've got some guys at the club who within this lockdown situation, some of them might be living by themselves for the first time, some of them might be going through what's a difficult situation for everybody without the support of, of, of friends and family. Has it been kind of your role as captain to, I suppose for a better choice of phrase, to look after them? No, I think so. I think, but, you know, lads are, you know, I think we've got a good group of lads in terms of they're all sensible young men and, you know, they know what's right and wrong and I think they can look after themselves to a certain extent. But like you said, we've got a young dressing room, so a lot of young lads here so it's important that we you know we're all keeping in touch and we all you know do our best to help each other and keep in contact you know but like I said I think that the most important thing there is you know we have got a good a good dressing room there's no sort of bad eggs if you like and you know other lads know that they need to you know mentally and physically stay ready and, and be professional. You've been a first team pro for what a decade just over a decade is this as much a mental challenge as a physical one you know preparing yourself to come back you know, whenever that might be. No, definitely. I mean, it's it's been tough. It's been tough on everyone, the whole country, the whole world, really. 
mentally it's been tough, you know, it's, and it's and it's something that we've we've never been through before. You know, I don't think any of us have been in this sort of situation where in the set you've maybe got an hour a day to do a bit of exercise. But no, certainly it you know, it has been a mental challenge. But I think obviously physically as well, you know, we've got to we've got to remember our jobs at the end of the day. We're we're professional footballers, so I think we need to be ready both physically and mentally for when the time comes that, you know, we do go back. From a more sort of football place, how do the young players at clubs, so someone like um, you know, a group like Max Ahrens and Todd Cantwell, Jamal Lewis, how do they compare as a group, as a group of young players to what you've experienced previously? In terms of having that many, you know, young lads that are got so much potential and so much talent in one squad, you know, I think that's probably very rare to find. There's just so many of them, you know, think of Ben, think of Jamal, think of Max, think of Todd, think of Emmy. You know, I hope I've not missed any of them there, but, you know, there's, there's certainly a good group of them that have got, you know, the potential and, and the talent to, to, I believe, go all the way to the top. But I think the, the biggest compliment I can probably give them is their temperament is, is second to none. And it's, you know, for me, seeing young lads that are getting thrown in the deep end, if you, if you like, handle themselves in, in such a way where they're, they're always so calm, they're always so professional, and they just deal with everything that's put in front of them. You know, that, that's the biggest compliment I can probably give them. Is that one of the biggest challenges with promotion when you've got like, being a young player in the championship to going to, you know, all of a sudden you're a young player who's on match of the day every Saturday. Like for someone like Todd Cantwell, he's scoring goals against Manchester City and all of a sudden is temperament the key ingredient there to a player being able to to deal with that adjustment? You know, it's particularly when they're talented and young. No, definitely. I think so. Like I said, I'm thankful to the club for, for you know, for putting that trust in them and giving them that opportunity. But, you know, to see them take it in their stride and, you know, progress so well and do so well and perform so well, you know, fair play to them because it's, you don't get that that often. You don't see young lads that come into a team and, and stay in a team for a, you know, a sustained period of time and continue to perform at the top level. What are the biggest differences, do you think, in terms of defending and, the, and, and attacking, obviously, between the Championship and the Premier League? Is it simply you're punished more readily for your mistakes? No, I think so. Obviously, the quality of player is obviously better in, in the Premier League. The physical aspect of it has been a jump up for us as well in terms of, you know, everyone's an athlete. Everybody's got a physical attribute that is, you know, a massive threat. And also, like you said, when, when they do get that chance, more often than not, it's it's a goal. So it's, you know, it's it's been a big part of our season just, you know, try to find that level of consistency where, you know, you try and limit opportunities to, to the opponents as much as you can. I looked it up this morning and I think from you're one of eight players who's still at the club from 2017. So that's a kind of period of three years. What have been the main differences in the club that you found when you first arrived and the one that exists around you now? Tough one to answer because 2017 I signed, but yeah, obviously that was a that was it was a new club for me at that time as well. So I was walking into something that was strange to me anyway. So as it was changing, it's I'm kind of just going through the motions with that anyway. It's a, it is a tough one to answer, Obviously, There's a lot of new faces. There's a lot of, I'd say it's probably a lot younger dressing room now than what it was when I first walked in. But no, I think it's, overall, I would say it's, you know, it's a good place to be. I think as soon as I walked in the door, I got the, I got the feeling of the, the atmosphere and sort of the culture around the place that, you know, Stuart's kind of drove forward since I've been here in terms of being, you know, in it together and sort of family orientated. You know, I think that that's a massive part of the club and it's a massive part of, part of playing here. As as a player, as a senior player, 
is it a different experience working as a head coach stroke manager? It is. I mean, in, in terms of the football side, obviously, you know, the manager is sort of totally in charge there. But in terms of having a, a sporting director, it's you know, something I've never done before. And it's I've never sort of worked as closely, closely with someone, if you know what I mean. Mm. You know, I think I'd like to say, I think Stuart would probably tell you the same. You know, we've got a really good relationship, you know, especially throughout what's been going on recently. You know, we've been in constant contact. and But even, even so, on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, we are... He's constantly at the training ground, so you've you've sort of got that relationship already because you've seen him every day. Uh, with with Daniel Farker, he refused to change Norwich's style. You know, the temptation obviously was maybe to tighten up and make it more defensive in in strategy. How did the squad or the group feel about that as a collective? You know, I think fair play to the manager because you know he's got his beliefs and he's got his philosophy, and you know that's what we stick by and. Because we've had success doing it that way, you know, the players buy into that. And, you know, we understand and we appreciate that if we want to be successful, this is the way we've got to do it. And as a final point, um, what do you think will be the key factors in Norwich staying up if and when the season resumes? No, I think, you know, it's not just my opinion. I think probably generally as a whole, people would probably say that Norwich have performed well in the league. You know, as his players, you know, believe that we've, you know, performance-wise, we've done well and we've always, there's only been, you know, maybe three or four games that I can remember where we've not really competed. Most games were, were competing and we're getting beat by the odd goal. So I think, obviously, it's just it's just finding that little extra couple of percent of that little bit of edge that, you know, gets you a, a draw instead of getting beat or gets you a win instead of getting a draw, you know, to get some points over the line. But, you know, what I will say is it's, in terms of being in a relegation battle, it, it's, the atmosphere around around the club doesn't feel what you'd expect it to feel like. Still feels like there's that feel good factor, and you know we've still got the fans behind us. The dressing room's still a good place to be. You know we're definitely created the right atmosphere and you know the right working environment to be able to achieve what we want. And it's you know that's just up to the players to get it right on the pitch and get the points that we need. That's great. Thank you very much, Grant. I Thank really you, appreciate Grant. your time. Thank you. Cheers, guys. The voice of experience there, Dan. With Grant Hanley, someone like him, he was almost defined by his sense of authority. When he was at Blackburn, he was club captain. He's done the same role uh, at Norwich. And I know that Stu Webber, the sporting director, really places great store by his character. In general terms, can you spot the leader in football? I think you can anyway, and I think you can much more easily at a time like this. I think as as football supporters, we're used to that vision of a captain being, you know, the kind of chest-beating, crowd-motivating leader. But actually, it goes far, far beyond that remit. And every footballer you speak to will say exactly the same. A captain isn't judged generally by what they do on the pitch, although that, that clearly sometimes happens in, in crucial moments of crucial seasons. But they're judged by how they raise everyone and treat everyone around them. And at a time like this, that has never been more important. I would suggest that nothing that Grant Hanley does now and any club captain in the Premier League does between now and the end of whenever the season finishes will be as important as the work they've done in the last month, which is keeping contact with players, helping younger players, you know, just offering a voice, offering a, you know, an ear to, to players who need some, some moral and emotional support. And that work is very easy to overlook and almost impossible to measure, but do not, you know, do not be tricked into thinking that clubs don't appreciate it. 
Yeah, what what struck me about him was he's just his level headedness. It's interesting talking to people at the club, Seb, that they actually felt the benefit of him more in the promotion season where he was injured early, couldn't get back into the team, and yet responded as as almost like a, a you know a, a rallying point in the dressing room. I also thought it was very interesting. I don't know what you feel that. He said, look, this doesn't feel like a relegation dressing room. The dressing room, can you read that dressing room and can you rely on it? I don't know. I mean, it's for an outsider, it's a really hard question to answer. It's also, are, are we listening to a, a captain saying the things that he should be saying in that situation? Is he leading by what he believes the example should be? I don't know. But what I will say, Mike, is, and I know this is an unusual situation in the world and... It's unprecedented, but I think this relates to relegation. After we spoke to Grant, I remember thinking, if I was a young player in that dressing room and I had a an issue, maybe it's coronavirus related, maybe it's a a life problem. You're you know you're stuck in your home and you, you're unsure about you know what you know what you should be doing fitness wise. I remember thinking, now would I be more comfortable talking to my captain in this situation or my manager? And I thought, well, this what a luxury it would be to have someone like that as my captain. You know, someone that you could phone up and say, "Look, this is going on, and I need, I need your help." And I, it's it's kind of um, you know, a, a, a secondary answer to, to the question you posted, Dan, and that I think that's the value of captaincy. At the moment, it's accentuated by what's going on in the world, but apply this to relegation. So, a young player who's suffering with his form, who doesn't want to admit to having doubts or concerns to a manager because of how he may be judged, you go to your captain. I think that's where leadership is really, really relevant at the moment. Yeah, and someone who's benefiting from leadership, probably more from his coach in this circumstance, is Hamza Chowdhury. England under-21 international, obviously in competition with uh, Wolf and Didi at Leicester, but part of a generation of players there who have the potential to, it seems a very strange phrase I'm about to use, but you know, restore former glories. Well, it's only a few years since they won the Premier League, so I suppose that you can get away with that. I found him... Uh, really engaging, very intelligent and very convincing. Uh, you make up your own mind now. Thanks for joining us, Hamza, on the Football Writers Podcast. We're all in a very strange situation. Footballers are basically in isolation, training on their own. Obviously, it's really different. How different is it? It's been crazy, really. It's, it's, I feel like it's been a completely new situation, but I feel like for us, it's, it's been different because normally we're told to be somewhere at a certain time and this is what you're going to do and this is exactly what you're going to do. So to sort of drag yourself out of bed in the morning and have to motivate yourself, it's, it's been difficult because it's so new. I feel like the gaffer and the club and the sports science at Leicester have been really good and made it really easy and set out different exercises to do. So they've kept us on our toes and kept us fit. Yeah, what are you doing sort of aerobically? Aerobically, I've got a treadmill and there's quite a few fields near my house. I've got one set out for me to do. So they sent out as a little box full of cones, power bags, et cetera, et cetera, stuff like that. So it's just been really easy for us to sell. How's that? How quickly do things like technique subside? So like when you come back to training properly, what's the drop off for you? Like not having that kind of regular ball work with teammates. What's that like? It's difficult because obviously we were really in at the back end of the season. I think we had nine games to go. So it all becomes so natural to you because you're, you're working it every day for the last six, seven months. So it will be tricky, I feel like, when we go back. 
But um, within them drills and exercises they do, they give us little bits of ball work to do. I know it's difficult and it's, it's, it's never going to be the same or easy to keep it competitive. But it's just to try and keep your feet on the ball, get as many touches as you can. So it's not alien to us on the go back. What sort of things are you missing? You know, is it just the sort of the competitive edge, the adrenaline rush of a match? Or what, what's the specific things that you miss? I feel like it's the camaraderie, it's the banter that the boys have in and around the training ground. It's crazy, really, and especially in our dressing room, we're a real close-knit group, and, and we actually get along and do stuff outside of football together. So in that way, it's been really difficult. But we've been trying to communicate as much as we can over WhatsApp and text messages and whatnot. But, yeah, I've, re- I've really missed that. Yeah, because that does define your group, isn't it? You know, you're all of a similar age. You know, you're, what, 22 You've got yeah. seven or eight guys around your age group together. How does that help you personally? Is it almost like sort of a band of brothers thing going on? Yeah, for sure. If you ask any of us that, we're real close. But it's not only the ones that are, are younger, I feel like the older boys, the likes of Casper, Wes, Johnny, the older heads, are just as close, really. Go and speak to them about whatever and anything at whatever time, to be honest. But we've got a really 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 good group but the boys are um, the younger we've got like really really similar interests so like you say it's, it's so easy to go into football it's something that you wake up and sort of look forward to and i can't really say anything else apart from that us in the media sometimes we talk about when you've got like a young clutch of talent like you do at leicester we talk about kind of that almost as a homogenous group i know you've spoken there about what it's like socially but when you experience things for the first time within a season as a group is it helpful to have each other around so you have a bad defeat or you've had a good win do you feel yourself do you feel yourself growing as a group when those kind of things happen yeah for sure for many of us like you say because we're so young it's, it's new experiences so you don't really know how to react so it's so important and so helpful like I say, like, like Bard, um, Johnny, Wes, Casper, they, they talk to you through the situation, especially the manager. So for them to tell us that it's okay to lose games and okay to react and, and, and get emotional, or it's not, in some instances, that's not the way to react. I feel like that's really important for us and, and for us to take in our careers. It's like that stuff like when you make steps in the game, like where you play for, um, you went to the under-21s last summer, and, and is, is that the same? Like you have people to kind of, to lean on to find out what making those little journeys is going to be like for you is that is that kind of another useful bit of it yeah for sure i feel like if you speak to anyone in that play sports they've got that mentor or a few people that they can go back and and relate to and and just really just to let go let loose and and tell them how you're feeling because it's new experiences and it can either really beat you or make you so in that sort of aspect it's, it's really good to have them people around yeah, can I take you back to the first day that you walked into the training ground? You know, you're seven years old. You must be looking around and thinking, wow, what is this place? If you had any advice now to offer that seven-year-old who walked in for the first time, what would it be? Enjoy it. The atmosphere at Leicester and, and what, what we've got at the club is really special. And a lot of the boys come through not feeling the pressure as such as the likes of Man City and Chelsea and the big clubs and at a young age just to enjoy it really and to be honest that's a lot with my family they didn't really put pressure on my shoulders it was more of me enjoying it and, and letting off some steam in the early days but obviously later on it gets more competitive and, and, and they really keep you grounded and, and make you work hard. Mm. What's it like working with Brendan Rodgers as a coach? What do you think he's added to your game? A lot, to be honest. He's brought in so much stuff that I almost knew I needed to work on, but he's he's helped me work on it 
specific specific to my game and and game understanding and game management he sits down with me in his office and takes me through clips and and analysis and and stuff like that and he's got really good backroom staff with likes of chris colo and sads that take out the day and we do extra sessions the majority of the days after it's five minutes that's all it takes really but you see yourself building in games and you see pictures and images that you didn't really notice before the first time i saw you play hamza i think it was um i think you played almost like as a fullback I think I've seen you play in central defence, in holding midfield, and slightly further forward. What's your What's your favourite position to play? Before this manager came in, I would have definitely said as a holding midfielder, but I enjoy maybe playing as a number eight. But I, I don't know. It's a difficult question, really. Maybe an eight or a six depends on the system we're playing and who we're playing against. But, but no, it's difficult to say. What have you learned in competition with Wolf and Didi? You have to put it in every day. Wolf, relentless. <laughs> Honestly, every day it's just again and again and again. And I feel like that's what you have to be to, to get to the top level. And that's sort of what the manager's trying to drill into us as young boys is that it's not one day that you, you take your foot off the pedal. You've got to work as hard as you did the last day, if not harder. Is that definition of professionalism, though? For sure. For sure. Yeah, there's, like I say, there's loads of the older boys and they never let the standards slip so competitive and it makes tra- training interesting and it gets feisty at times but I feel like that's what you want especially as a manager you want to have players in certain positions that, that give you problems that you don't the choices that you don't really want to make so no it's, it's, it's really it's a really good environment for, for a young boys to be coming through at. Is it helpful for you for someone like Wilf and Didi like, okay he's probably not as widely acclaimed as he probably should be but is it really helpful to have someone in a similar position to you who's setting such a high standard, does that give you, not just in terms of like how you apply yourself in training, but in terms of the level of performance, is it just useful to have that as a barometer? Yeah, for sure. Training and playing with him is, is something that you, you need to take into account and you need to watch him and take into specifics and, and learn from him. And, and also, because he's competition, learn from his mistakes and see where I can improve and where he's maybe not so good at and, and vice versa. But no, to see him... I feel like we've watched him for the last two, two, three years, especially being at Leicester. So we always knew how good he was and what, what, what his attributes were. So I feel like because we've done so well as a team, maybe the media and, and, and other sources have maybe concentrated on him a little bit more this season. How good do you think you can be as a team? What are the limits, the realistic limits of your ambitions, do you think? I don't really feel like there is a limit to what we can do. I feel like... This is the manager's first season. We've got a, a very young team and we were so disappointed when we when we didn't let it slip, but we slipped off a little bit and, and the gap between us and Man City and Liverpool grew. I feel like it's such a learning curve for us and it's better that it's happened now in his first season. But the infrastructure at our club and, and the owner, going down from the owner to the managers to the players, the staff really are so amazing that I don't feel like there's a limit to what we can do. Was there a message from Brendan after those games? I remember covering the defeat at the Etihad. It was almost as if like you, you were the, you're an excellent side and it was just a little bit disappointing given what you were capable of. What, what did he say to you guys during that period to kind of to, to keep your trajectory in the right in the right position? He was just brutally honest with us at, at, at times in that, okay, we're not at that level yet, but that's where we want to be and, and to see him play against it is something that you want to experience. But he said, we're not at that level, but we will be to work hard and training and it's okay that we've lost, but we need to bounce back better and, and next time we play them or next season that comes around, we're going to be ready for them and, and they're not going to really, they're not going to beat us or dominate the game like that. 
So. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for your time, Hamza. There's just one last question. It's it's a daft one, which is probably our speciality. Um, I talk to I talk a lot to to players who are undergoing you know, long term rehab, and a lot of them say, "Yeah, I actually dream about playing football yeah. because I'm away from it." You know, I see the guys in the training ground and everything else. Because you haven't played football for what a couple of months, are you dreaming about football now? Um, I won't say regularly. I think, to be honest, I don't really remember any of my dreams. To be honest, be careful, Hamza. Don't answer this too specifically. Yeah, no, I don't know. I'm, I'm, no. Yeah. All right, mate. I told you it was a daft one. Anyway, well, thank you very much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Hamza. So, Seb, I said before then I was really impressed with him. What was your view of him? I thought he was a delight. I think it was really interesting. You and you, know, after we finished recording, Mike, we had a little conversation about it. And it was just, I found him to be, you know, uh, indicative of, of the sort of the modern generation of footballer who has thoughts about the game and is expressive and is just engaging. And I know things are a little bit strange over Zoom and it's not quite the same as interviewing a player in real life. But uh, I found him really interesting. And I, I don't know whether you guys would agree with this, but I found that um, I think as as a footballer, Hamza Chowdhury is a you know technically very gifted player, but also really thoughtful with his passing, and seems to even for his level of experience, seems to read the game really well. And I felt like that reflected a little bit in his personality. Now that might be me drawing lines that don't exist, but that's that's the impression I got. It's kind of can you draw a a parallel between the way a player speaks and responds to questions versus what they are on the pitch and what role it is they're there to perform? It was interesting. Yeah. I get the sense, Dan, that Leicester will continue to improve. You know, obviously they're one of the surprises of the season as it stands. That idea of a group of players moving together, you know, is, is, is very much against modern business principles in many ways because people do move on from clubs like Leicester. But you've got six, seven, eight players around about that sort of 22 to 24 age group. How important is that? Yeah, it's absolutely huge. And it's, it's gold dust, quite frankly, in, in a game that, as you say, has become incredibly transient in terms of player and manager moves. They've got something that you can't recreate. And, and quite frankly, you wouldn't want to recreate at Leicester in that they've got this memory of their former owner who they are absolutely determined to, you know, to, to show the best of and to, to make him proud without... You know, without resorting to sort of twee cliche, they they very much do believe that. They believe that everything they do now is to say thank you for for what their former owner allowed them to achieve, and they will do everything they can to do it. And that's a very powerful mantra to set out to to young players to say, "Hang on a minute, you're not here just to to earn a big move to a big club. You're not even here just to win a trophy. You're here because we are all committed to this pursuit of of the memory of of Vichai. and yeah, I think they've got the perfect manager to do that. I think they've got a manager who, while he has an ego, and that's important for players and managers, you need that, is also absolutely committed again to, to making clubs the best he can be and making the style of play the best he can be that he believes in and making every player pursue that goal wholeheartedly. And, you know, it's very odd in that we've got this dichotomy between the, the, the Premier League in which the very richest have this huge leg up and yet clubs like Leicester, who sit below that financial elite, can bridge the gap by doing things smartly, doing things cleverly, and still having the financial resources to buy and recruit effectively. Yeah, you, you mentioned you know, the importance of management there, Dan. 
we have this existing feature where we ask listeners to suggest their own football heroes. Now, obviously, 99.9% of them are players. But there was one which caught my eye from uh, Nason Nero. He suggested that Herbert Chapman should be our hero in terms of, you know, he's, as he says, the man was a visionary, a pioneer, an innovator. The ideas he had and the ones he implemented revolutionised the game forever in this country. He was a pioneer of modern tactics, numbered shirts, floodlights, pitch marking. His intelligence was decades ahead of his time. Said we live in an age, don't we, where the where the manager is a bit of a matador, really, a media matador. Do we actually underestimate what came before the modern generation, do you think? Some of those legendary managers who were around when we weren't around. In Chapman's case, without question, Mike, because... He's a little bit of an outlier. He actually he died very early. He's been dead for nearly 90 years now. But in his career, essentially lies the sort of the basis for the modern game. All the things you've mentioned, the floodlights, the number shirts, the, the modern tactics. That there are interesting other little bits too. Like uh, Chapman, Chapman almost believed in kind of dressing room democracy. So he wanted players to, to have ownership of what they were doing on the pitch, which is a really, really modern idea. In this country, he was certainly the first manager to popularise the, the WM formation. He was the first to use tactics boards in the dressing room. You know, he, he basically built a lot of the cliches that exist around the game. For people who are interested, he has a comparison in American sports with Paul Brown, the uh, former head coach of the uh, Cleveland Browns, in the sense that he was a man of innovation. And there's some fabulous documentaries on YouTube about Paul Brown. He invented sort of radios and quarterbacks, um, helmets and stuff like that. And it, it's just, it's really interesting. And Chapman is that guy in English football, but many, many years before, decades before, which really depicts his level of innovation. I think he's a fascinating character. Anyone who's at a loss during lockdown still, I recommend the the, uh, the biography of his of his life. It's a fascinating read. Yeah, it's a good book. Very good book. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, Dan, in terms of, you know, the managers that you've experienced, both, you know, maybe as a fan, but also as a journalist, which manager left the most abiding impression on you? There are two that kind of stick out for different reasons. The, the first is you know, I was lucky enough to spend a, a, a fair amount of time with, with Eddie Howe and, at Bournemouth. And, you know, he's a manager who is not without the pressures of, you know, of, of modern football in terms of impatience and in terms of the financial penalties of relegation. And Bournemouth are clearly haunted by that at the moment. But he is an incredibly focused man and you know we talked about Chapman as this kind of almost the first manager to wrestle control away from directors and want to do everything himself that is Eddie Howe you know he is someone who wants to if he believes that changing the breakfast cereal will give his team a 0.1% chance of better chance of winning the next game he will do that he is absolutely obsessed and and the other one more recently I met was, was Danny Cowley who is just incredibly intense is absolutely obsessed and addicted to to winning or at least trying to win it in any way possible is again you when you meet these managers you realize again we, we said it about captains that you see what they do on the pitch the same is true with managers you think well he's not very good at making substitutions or he doesn't shout at his players much on the touchline but you get some insight into just how much these people dedicate themselves to their craft and just how much it becomes all consuming in no, not just their professional lives, but pretty much every waking minute of every day. Yeah, well, I can remember with Eddie Howe, I went to interview him for 
my manager's book, Living on the Volcano, and uh, got to the stadium at 25 to 7 in the morning, and he'd beaten me to it. Uh, and, you know, I went, to, I went to see he was going through a, a, a game when I, when I popped up to his office about 20 to 7, something ridiculous. And equally, Danny and, and, and his brother as well, you know, I, I spent quite a bit of time with them when they were at Lincoln, and there's a lovely sort of, and I'm, this is not disrespectful, there's a Sunday League flavour to them as well, mm. where, you know, you go into the manager's office, it does whiff a bit because there's there's sweaty kit in the corner, there's really muddy Adidas girls all over the floor, the coach is making tea and toast. Um, it's just, it's brilliant, you know, and that, that to me is... Is you know that that smell actually funny enough of, of of rancid kit is actually one of the smells of football, isn't it? So it's if there's an authenticity to it, I suppose you know. Yeah. Talking of authenticity, you know we've got this series which is you know basically our our version of Room One Hundred and One. The matches that we cannot bear to watch again. I'll throw mine in right at the start. It's the twenty nineteen FA Cup final, Manchester City six Watford nil. Now that's got nothing to do with allegiance or quality you know i was brought up with watford frankly uh, uh, i'm now a distant lover really but manchester city on that day they were so good it was almost pointless you know it was a wonderful hat trick by uh, raheem sterling and to me someone was brought up on the the grandeur of an fa cup final and, you know, the sense that it was the exclamation mark on a season. A game like that being reduced to an embarrassing training game, to be perfectly honest, really got to me. And I'd never, ever want to see it again. Dan, what about yourself? Well, congratulations to you for shunning your non-partisan heart. I'm very, gonna, <laughs> very much going to put it squarely on my own head, but... Yeah, I am a Nottingham Forest fan, and Nottingham Forest relationships with with the playoffs is infamous. We have we've been in several campaigns and never got to a playoff final. But the closest we came was in two thousand and seven when we won two nil in the away leg against Yeovil, and we're all set to go to Wembley and transpired to to lose on aggregate. We were three one up on aggregate with eight minutes to go conceded an own goal and then a header. We had that imperfect hat-trick of, of own goal, red card and horrific defensive mistake by Wes Morgan to send us out, who would then obviously go on and captain our rivals to the Premier League title. And I remember the my abiding memory is coming out of the ground and some opportunistic local businessman had, assuming Forrest would qualify, had put in under the, the windscreen wipers of cars in the local area, had put this coaches offer travel to Wembley <laughs> cheap travel to Wembley and it just you know it, it, to be honest it made people laugh the dark humor of it but yeah I never ever want to watch that game yeah. again you'd like to unburden your souls Seb <laughs> <laughs> so I'll go back to January 1999 and a cup tie between Oxford United and Chelsea so I went to school in Oxford for a long time and I, I grew very attached to Oxford United because uh, I could just walk up Headington Hill to the old manor ground and uh, it was in the days before my mum would let me go to let me go to North London by myself. And it was a classic underdog game. It was a very patchwork, financially blighted Oxford United somehow finding themselves 
in the lead. Dean Windass header at the near post in front of the old London Road end. And they played brilliantly. And then with, I think, about a minute and a half left, having already missed quite a good chance, the eight foot nine Kevin Francis stuck out a uh, telescopic leg and very clearly took the ball off Gianluca Vialli. So much so that it actually went out for a throw-in. And I think it was Mike Riley, or it might have been Mike Reed actually, who um, the referee, rather than the uh, you know the old landlord of the Queen Vic and Eastenders, um, the comedian, that yeah, would have right. been appropriate, wouldn't it? Yeah, and it is one of the worst decisions I've ever seen. And I'm a Tottenham fan, so I've left the uh, loyalties at the door. But I just, it was heartbreaking to watch. It was one of those where it was kind of. It was the kind of injustice which felt perfectly in keeping with what the game was turning into in the kind of the conspiratorial big club gets everything. And Oxford were, I mean, Oxford for most of the 90s obviously were on the edge of a precipice post uh, Robert Maxwell and the um, the unravelling of his finances. It was one of the cruelest things I've ever seen in football. If you can find it, I'm sure it still exists somewhere, but that is, it's one of the worst penalty decisions I've ever seen. And uh, Frank LaBeouf tucked it away and uh, Chelsea went on to win the replay at Stamford Bridge. The way of life, the way of life. <laughs> okay, well, just to pull this uh, together now, you know, our thoughts for the day, really. Dan, is there anything you want to get off your chest? Yeah, and it's something I've said before and probably will say at boring length again, but I think <laughs> one thing we need to learn, particularly during this crisis, is that the, the shaming of empty seats needs to stop. We all agree that ticket prices are too high and fans are being ignored as the game kind of dances with rampant capitalism, and yet... We seem to play into the hands of those who exclude those fans by kind of delighting in and mocking this triumphant crowing of, of empty seats. That you know, Empty seats are not a judgment on the loyalty of supporters. They're a judgment on a game that has alienated them from something they love. And if we could only remember during this crisis that there's a lot more that unites us than divides us, you know, we will be stronger going forward as a, as a unit of football supporters. Yeah, well said. Well said. Seb? Yeah, I'll go something. I'll go back to something I touched on right at the beginning. I was really impressed by the standard of football over the weekend. And it made me think because it made me consider all the challenges that coaches and players have been facing with social distancing, yes, but the kind of the, the oddity of training and sort of the lack of proper preparation. And yet they were able over the course of the weekend. I saw three really excellent games. I gleefully watched every minute of football that was available to me and, and three of them were, were, were fantastic. And it made me think about the ways in which coaches impart information, but also the way players adapt to it. Because players are always, especially in this country, players are pelted with fairly pejorative assumptions about their intelligence and about their comprehension. For people who understand sort of how many set pieces there are in open play and the amount of understanding that has to go into a cohesive team performance, I think the players and the coaching staff are doing an awful lot of credit in the Bundesliga and the Bundesliga's eye. They were a real testament to to the work that's going on in this weird sort of sterile quarantine centre. Yeah, well, I, I hope listeners will forgive me the, the personal note that I want to end with. Mel Johnson, who was my spiritual guide to scouting, called me last night it was really good to hear from him since we were worried about his health uh, thankfully he was released from hospital himself on friday the news though he had to deliver cut me to the quick john griffin the scout scout had passed away he was a warm wise man who felt the game in his bones hundreds of footballers owe their careers to him 
He sensed talent through instinct. To give you an example, he realised that Stan Collymore was a latent talent, literally, by watching him run out onto a pitch. Nothing more, nothing less. He left that game after 20 minutes because he didn't want anyone to realise what he'd seen. Now, Griff won universal trust and admiration, which is very rare in football. And his passing reminds us of football's hidden heroes. They're the scouts who wreck their cars, sometimes even wreck their marriages, for 40p a mile. Now, they've been really hard hit in this current crisis. And I hope against hope that they won't be forgotten because they're really important people. Thanks to all of you for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. And please, stay safe out there. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.